brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. Welcome back to 1050 Bascom. Today, we are joined by Professor Allison Prash to discuss the third Republican presidential primary debate. The debate was held in Miami, Florida on Wednesday, November 8th. Dr. Prash is an associate professor in the communications department here at UW-Madison, where she studies and teaches on rhetoric, politics, and culture. Thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to the 1050 Bascom podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So this is the third installment of our 2024 presidential debate series. Uh, We most recently had Professor Wagner join us to talk about the second debate that took place in late September. What has all changed since then? Well, there's a number of things that have changed. Um, I think we could see several significant developments, both in the Republican presidential primary, um, polling, and then also events on the world stage. So within the Republican primary, um, former Vice President Mike Pence has dropped out of the race, really leaving the field and people who were on the debate stage to five. So you have Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, um, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and we have the business personality Vivek Ramaswamy and then South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. So so Pence is out of the mix and you know that remains to be seen of where those voters may go. Um, polling, so the weekend just before the debate, there's a notable New York Times Siena College poll that comes out that shows that Trump is leading Biden in four of five key swing states. And it really begins, you see some um, hand-wringing among Democratic um, strategists. David Axelrod comes out and suggests in multiple places that perhaps Biden should um, drop out. And CNN publishes a poll the day before the uh, the debate saying that Trump is leading Biden in a rematch by four percentage points. So you have that element going in. You also have the November 7th election, so the day before the debate. Not necessarily a big one um, across the nation, but we do have a number of key wins for Democrats, most notably the passage of Ohio Issue 1, which is enshrining um, the right to abortion in the state constitution, and then also the re-election of Democratic um, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir. So those are all on the domestic stage. And then I think, obviously, and, and very importantly here, um, thinking about the conflict in Israel and Gaza, so following the horrific attacks on Israelis on October 7th by Hamas, you have Biden you know, seeking to, to figure out how he's going to support Israel and really a splintering of multiple groups and thinking about what this means in terms of human rights um, and Israel's right to exist. And as the stage gets more and more narrow, how does this influence the actual debate? And also, what is the significance of this debate being held in Florida? Yeah, that's a great question. So before we even think about who's there and where it is, I thought the the visuals were striking. Um, if you think back to the essentially the almost this life-size vision of the White House that you saw these multiple candidates standing in front of, I thought that was a really interesting choice. Um, and, and a really great, you know, staged moment. Also think to, to note that the front runner is not there. 
So Donald Trump is notably and intentionally absent. Um, he's just a few miles away holding his own rally, but he is not there. And so I think um, we see that in the way that the, the moderator is going to begin the questions of, you know, why you and not Donald Trump? And I think that that's a really clear um, signal to voters that, that that's what they need to to consider. But I also think the location in Florida, I mean, obviously it is a Republican stronghold. It's become that over the last several election cycles. You can count on a really robust Republican base and people who want to be there, robust Republican donors. Um, I don't necessarily think it's there because they're hoping to to win Florida, although I think, of course, Republicans do hope to, but they also expect to. And so I think it is kind of this this symbol that um, Republicans have been really successful in Florida, and it's, it's a place that they expect to win. I think it's important to note that the very first in the last question from the moderators asked the candidates why a voter should choose them over former President Donald Trump. The timing of this question being at the very beginning and end of the debate and being asked nearly a year out from the 2024 election is particularly interesting. Can you tell us about how the candidates identified themselves from Trump um, and can you talk about the rationale for asking this question at this time? Yeah, I think the way that the debate is framed with that initial question really establishes the themes not only that the candidates are seeking to address but also that the audience comes to expect mm-hmm. it's a really unique moment that again the the front runner is not there and that he can be the front runner and not be there that says something about his hold on Republican politics currently and his assumption that he gets to define the stakes of the game. But I do think it was the right way to begin because if you are watching this Republican debate, you are essentially trying to decide, do I want someone other than Donald Trump or do I want Donald Trump? And so that's what's on the minds of you know, most voters, because as much as we all were engaged in the debate on Wednesday night, not everyone is watching it. So just briefly how each candidate um, is is differentiating themselves in some way, they all do it in a little bit of a different style, which tells us something about their, their candidacy. So DeSantis starts by saying, I'm for the people. He criticizes the elite. He also says in multiple places during the debate that he's willing to take the jabs, the hits, the barbs, to fight for you. This is very um, reminiscent of language that Trump often uses. But he also criticizes Trump for not showing up and answering questions. And so he does um, you know, take that attack. Haley's going to say something similar, but, but not draw on this, what we could call violent language to some extent. She says really explicitly to the audience, you know, I can talk about Trump, but I really think that we should be focusing on the future. And so I think this is her really, it's it's a deft rhetorical move to both acknowledge his presence in the room, even though he's not there, um, but also say, you know, Donald Trump was the right president for the right time in 2016. He's not going to be in 2024. And so she, she finishes her statement by saying, you know, we need to focus on what's going to make the United States, America, strong and proud. And that's really her narrative. Um, Ramaswamy says, we've become a party of losers. He directs his ire towards Ronna McDonald, McDaniel, excuse me, and, and even goes after one of the moderators, um, Kristen Welker, in, in a way that I think is really um, uncomfortable and inappropriate. Um, and, they, and they try to call him out on it, but it's, it's notable. Christy, I, I know this sounds crazy, but I am going to say it. There are parts of Christie's answer that remind me of Reagan, not in terms of eloquence or stage presence, but his ability to kind of step back from immediate issues and paint a larger vision of the nation in ways that, you know, he says extraordinarily important issues such as the Middle East, anti-Semitism, Ukraine, 
inflation. And then he says, you know, anyone who's going to be spending the next year and a half focused on staying out of jail cannot lead the party or the country. And so he's really unapologetic about his um, critique. Scott doesn't engage the question. He talks about we need to return to a faith field, um, Judeo-Christian foundation. And that's really the, the, the uh, basis of his campaign. So in all, all of them do in some ways, um, but I think it tells us something about how they see their candidacy and how it's linked to Trump. I haven't gone back and examined this yet, but just thinking, I feel like Tim Scott's faith-based discussions mm-hmm. really ramped up this time. Yeah. Do you think that was to collect some of those Pence voters that might still be, you know, wondering where to go after he dropped out? It could be. Okay. Um, you know, I think Scott is much more direct, amped up, um, you know, intense in the religious language and being quite explicit. I mean, there are ways that you can read what Scott is saying um, in terms of Christian nationalism, in yeah. terms of, you know, it's not just faith is an important part of the American story. I mean, he is explicit about there is one particular faith and even saying you don't have to be a Christian to be a part of America, but you do need to recognize that we are a Judeo-Christian nation. And that's pretty intense. Um, So it could be Pence, but he also, I mean, there is a large white evangelical base that supports Trump. And so it's also trying to maybe appeal to them. Um, So I don't know. Yeah, and then kind of to follow up about Ramaswamy, because he's been an interesting candidate. He's kind of not came out of nowhere, but definitely kind of came out swinging in every meaning of that metaphor. Do you think he's trying to do what Trump did to the Republican Party a second time? Which is to say, Trump came in really kind of disturbed the balance of the traditional Republican Party. And especially with his comments about uh, McDaniel and going after the moderator, it seems like he's doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the lessons of 2016, 2020, is that attention gets you somewhere and even if it's negative attention even outrage gets you somewhere and you talk to voters who supported trump and they say well you know i like that he did things differently so perhaps um i also think and i and i don't know a lot about ramaswamy's you know background beyond just kind of your general political knowledge but it does seem very opportunistic I think, you know, sure, you want to stand up there, you have a lot of money, um, you want to make arguments, you want to kind of needle people. But his polling numbers are not suggesting that he is, you know, someone that is a serious candidate. Although you can also say that, you know, maybe candidates are playing a long game. Maybe it's not just about 2024, it's about the future. Mm -hmm. But I think he is modeling himself as, you know, a Trump junior. I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting theory that uh, we're going to have to keep our eye on going forward into the next debate. Um, I want to transition into talking about policy now. Nearly half of the debate time last night was spent talking about foreign policy. Um, Let's start with a topic that took up a majority of this time, that being the war between Israel and Hamas and the resulting crisis in Gaza. How did the candidates vary on their stances towards aid or assistance to Israel? And how did they each talk about this issue? So I think this is one of the places that we see the most points of agreement between the candidates. I mean, you see, for example, everyone saying in some way, shape or form to finish the job. And it's in various levels of intensity. So, you know, is it, for example, that Ramaswamy is saying he'd smoke out um, the 
Hamas and then extending it to questions about immigration in the United States, finish the job, was something that DeSantis and um, Nikki Haley were both talking about. So I think that that's you know overwhelming agreement, and it does reflect the the general tenor of the Republican base of being really strong supporters of Israel. You know, one one point of conversation about Israel and Gaza that I thought was really interesting is when the moderators brought up thinking about the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. And um, that's not something that the candidates really addressed, except for Christie. And he offers this really interesting and thoughtful answer about how he worked with Muslim Americans in New Jersey after 9-11. And he talked about that it takes leadership and ability to work both sides. And so this is where, when we're talking about a primary debate, it gets really interesting because for the majority of Republicans probably watching this debate and trying to decide, do we want an alternative to Trump? Generally speaking, that um, thinking about being able to speak to both sides is not something necessarily that may play well with the base. Mm -hmm. But Christie also recognizes that it's a reality of presidential leadership and he decides to bring it up anyway. I also thought it was really interesting, and I think Nikki Haley is the best example of this. A lot of them connected. It was Ukraine, Russia, Israel, Hamas, China, Taiwan. Yes. Maybe throw North Korea in there. I think Nikki Haley called it, an, what was it, an unholy alliance, alliance which was like really interesting. And then also and bringing it back to the border, to the yes. southern border for yes. a lot of candidates. Yes. Well, and I think too on the, you know, the question of Israel mm-hmm. and aid to Israel versus aid to Ukraine, that was a really interesting discussion. Yeah. Because, you know, you have people up on the stage who are saying, no, we need to withdraw our support from Ukraine. Ramasamy saying, you know, I'm, I'm not impressed with Zelensky. I yeah. don't believe he needs um, what he says he needs. Um, and then you have people, you know, who are much more um, explicit about the fact that, no, we, we need to send aid to Israel and Ukraine. But you see this splintering in the Republican Party about what aid to both of those places means. And on a related note, the candidates were also asked about immigration and the opioid epidemic. How did they talk about those issues and what was your takeaway from that discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think the decision to even talk about those two things in tandem is really interesting, um, especially, you know, if you have individuals who are watching that are really concerned about immigration, it links them to thinking about the opioid epidemic and vice versa. Um, there were several examples brought up of you know, individual conversations that people had had with um, you know, people who had lost children. For example, Ron DeSantis talks about um, speaking with a father who had lost um, a, a child to a fentanyl overdose. You know, it's interesting because the question allows candidates to go where they want to go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Christy makes the really interesting point that we just need to call it what it is, a disease, right? It's a mental health concern, which I think um, is a much clearer or more obvious inference than necessarily um, immigration. But then, you know, DeSantis absolutely takes the opportunity to say, I'm going to build a wall and that that's really important to him. So again, this is where Trump looms large on the debate stage, even though he is not there. You think about the appeals that he makes to, you know, illegal immigrants or you know people who are coming in you think about in 2016 where he talks about individuals who have been killed by illegal immigration and bringing the family members of those people up on stage with him and so i think you know some candidates see it as a a rallying cry to the base and so they're going to address it however they can i just have one quick follow-up how much do you think people like christy or scott 
are working more towards just using this as a campaign opportunity because like they're obviously elected in other mm-hmm. positions and mm-hmm. so like they have this big stage to their disposal and they're meeting the, the threshold and you know it's not to say they're not serious contenders because they are and they could absolutely mm-hmm. in a maybe different scenario win the republican nomination how much of it is like this is just a good look for me you know for my state for my own campaign that is a great question you know i think without saying I know exactly what's, you know, in their minds and their advisors' minds. I mean, I think you can take a a generous reading of it or a really cynical reading of it or somewhere in between. So the cynical reading of it would be um, you just, you know, want this limelight, you want this stage, you want to be able to be seen by people. For Scott, for example, you know, as a senator, um, Scott has had a really interesting political career in thinking about, you know, the, the times that he will deliver a Republican response to Biden, for example, um, because of being from South Carolina, being a black man who is a Republican, and um, that that's unique and unusual um, in, in his particular brand of conservatism. Um, but I also think that some candidates may really be playing the long game um, and um, recognizing that regardless of what happens in 2024 and if Trump is the nominee, we don't know. He obviously is leading in the polls. Even if he is, right, and he wins in 2024, um, there's 2028, there's 2032. Um, the generous, and perhaps this is too optimistic, but I'll just put it out there, is that I do think people like Christy, like Scott, like Haley, um, sincerely believe in the longevity of the Republican Party, and it's very important to them. And so if you are someone who wants to see your particular brand of conservatism survive and not allow it to be defined or taken over by the Trump version, someone needs to be speaking what that is on a large national stage so that people don't forget that that still exists. And so perhaps that's also one of the motivations behind what they're doing. All right, and wrapping up a bit, there is just one more presidential primary debate that has been scheduled for December. What should we look forward to or expect from that debate? Well, I mean, I think the obvious answer to that question is that there's going to continue to be a winnowing of candidates and candidates attempting to undercut support from others. Mm-hmm. You know, just in the last few days, people offering assessments and I would agree with this you know that Nikki Haley had a really fantastic night and I think she could be you know really on the upswing I was listening to the NPR politics podcast this morning and they were talking about that at some point Haley needs to attack Trump directly but then also the choice to do that can really alienate perhaps a lot of voters but it's interesting I think the direct attacks are getting a little bit more direct with every primary debate and so it's interesting to see you know strategically how the candidates will decide to um, proceed and then I think the other thing that we just have to acknowledge is that um, the front runner is in the midst of multiple avenues of litigation um, and appearing in court and so there's always the unspoken assumption that that could you know change at any point and then the candidates would need to um, address that as well. Speaking of Haley, as she continues to perform pretty well and uh, kind of come out more on top in a lot of these debates. Do you think that Trump is going to really start attacking her specifically? And how does her gender play into that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone probably wants to base their career on 
predicting what Trump will do. Um, <laughs> but um, if, if history is any guide, yes. In terms of you know, anyone he sees to a threat um, to him or his candidacy, I think you only need to look at the multiple bids for Speaker of the House of Representatives to see that Trump still has a remarkable um, power to, to really you know crown someone um, and being very concerned about people being um, loyal to him. In terms of gender, it absolutely has to do not only with how Trump treats Haley, but more broadly how Haley is seen mm -hmm. on the debate stage. You know, she's the only woman, obviously, that's up there. She experiences attacks, particularly from Ramaswamy during the debate um, that are deeply gendered at one point. You know, he says when they're talking about foreign policy, do you want another Dick Cheney in three inch heels? Um, and she fires right back um, and says, well, actually they're five inch and I use them for ammunition. And so there, there are parts of her responses that are reminiscent to me of Sarah Palin in, tw in 2008. But, you know, it's important to talk about when we think about the presidency and presidential debates that the presidency as an institution has always been male and it is gendered in very particular ways. Mm -hmm. And so when people talk about Haley and can she do it, there is this underlying assumption, unspoken sometimes, but that there is this profound difference between strength and vigor that you can see in a male candidate versus a woman. And particularly for Trump, who has defined his presidency on this masculine strength. Um, and even when you talk to voters who say, I'm going to go from Biden to Trump, they will list those qualities um, of, well, he's going to be stronger on this issue, or we need someone who is, you know, defending the United States in particular ways. There's a gender component to that that, that plays into this discussion. Yeah, is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you think we should? You know, the only other thing I would say, and this comes from my um, perspective as, as a student of language and rhetoric, um, I thought it was really interesting to see parallels in how all of the candidates presented their policies in ways that either aligned with or significantly departed from Trump, even if they didn't invoke his name. So, for example, um, DeSantis and Ramaswamy sounded very similar to Trump in the types of language they would use. So um, they would say, I'm, you know, I'm going to take the hits for you. I'm going to fight for you. Um, Ramaswamy talking about smoking out terrorists at the border. I mean, there's there's violent aspects of their language um, or thinking about um, rhetoric of war to a particular degree. Um, Scott's really unapologetic about his faith. We've talked about that. And it's a clear signal, I think, to evangelical voters who saw Trump as the person who could overturn Roe v. Wade, for example, through his Supreme Court um, nominations, um, but also kind of pulling from those punts voters. Um, I really think Haley is a force of her own um, in embracing her own particular brand of strength, but also demonstrating that that strength and vision of America that she holds, that some Republicans would also hold, does not have to be linked to populism or Trump and that there can be a different version of it. And then, you know, for Christie, there is this Reagan-esque quality, as I said earlier. It's not necessarily in his stage presence. It's not in the charisma. He's not a former actor, but he does have the ability to step back and kind of cast this larger vision of what the United States has and could be. I think that can really appeal to those Reagan Republicans, however many of them we have left. But I think 
in all of those ways, they're attempting to slowly and subtly undercut some of Trump's rhetorical flourishes that have worked and offer their own particular um, language of how to define the Republican Party. And finally, to wrap up what has been a really fantastic discussion today, uh, I wanted to note you're teaching a class next year on the rhetoric of the presidential election. Can you tell us more about the class and what students should expect from it? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really excited to be teaching this new class that I've designed. I've taught it in a few different iterations, first at Colorado State University, where I was um, first an assistant professor, and then I taught it in the fall of 2020. Um, It was virtual, as everything was. But essentially, I've designed this class to analyze the rhetoric of the presidential election in real time. And so the, the way that the class is organized is we begin by setting up some of the historical precedents for thinking about how we understand Uh, the rhetoric or the persuasive appeals that candidates attempt to use to reach a public. And then we look at that from a historical perspective. So what are the the trends? What are the things we might be able to expect? Key historical case studies. And then I really use those first few weeks to kind of set up what students can expect as the campaign season unfolds. But then very quickly, by by the time we get to the middle of September, we're watching the presidential debates together, if we have them, which we should. Um, we are analyzing, you know, uh, the the messaging or the um, advertisements the various candidates um, put forward. But I think most significantly, and this is what I love about this class, and students seem to really like too, is that half of my syllabus says topics TBD because I recognize mm-hmm. that it changes constantly. So what that looked like in 2020 is. Trump was diagnosed with COVID, and we spent an entire week thinking about, you know, what is the role of um, COVID policies from both candidates? What does it mean that Trump's campaigning and Biden's, you know, not doing public events? How do we analyze that from a persuasive messaging? And so what I do ask students to do is be really cognizant of developments in the campaign, and I'm trying to equip them with the tools and the skills to read and understand how both candidates are attempting to speak to a broader public. Um, To be clear, we are analyzing the rhetoric of it. We're not making judgments about who's right, who's wrong. Um, I'm trying to help students and citizens be engaged to understand how to make sense of what's going on around them and then to do it in an atmosphere that you can really connect it to the scholarly literature and historical precedent. That sounds like such an amazing class and it's definitely something to look out for next year in the fall. Um, Dr. Prash, thank you so much for joining us today. This was wonderful. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.